evening, everybody, again. Um, My name's Sally. Did I say that earlier? Um, My name's Sally, if if I didn't. Anyway, um, we're going to be thinking today about somebody in the Bible. If you haven't been coming along to something else for the past few weeks, then um, we've been looking at people in prayer. We've been looking at different people's encounters of God in prayer and prayer in sort of different, different types of prayer, really, in different situations. And this evening, we're going to be thinking about Um, a woman in the Bible called Hannah who prayed to God from what the Bible describes as within her great grief and anguish. So the song that we've just sung is really, really um, significant and relevant to what we're going to be thinking about today. And I hope that um, as we kind of think about that, we're going to be able to think about three things really and I'll tell you what they are now so that you can keep me to task if I go wandering off the point so you can say well hang on a minute we didn't do point two or something like that not that obviously I'm known for going off the point you understand Um, we're going to think about the context of Hannah's pain and anguish so we're going to be thinking about what else is going on for her we're going to be thinking about how she responds to that pain and anguish in in her prayer And we're also going to be thinking about the perspective of Hannah's story. And I think there are some things that we can learn from Hannah's experience and from how she responds to that. And before we do that, I'm going to get Emily to come and do the reading for us. But I've realised that the thousands of people that will download this sermon won't know what we're talking about unless you're talking to this. So you're going to have to get very intimate because, excuse us, while I just pull it out of my pocket. Sorry, people who are listening on the thingy. There you go. Okay. Do you want to hold it? Because I feel a bit All right, there we go. Um, <laughs> stands with Emily in this Bible reading. You might want to get your Bibles out. It's um, 1 Samuel 1, and it's... Um, from verses 4 to 20. And if you've got one of these newer Bibles, it's on um, page 271. So it's 1 Samuel 1, verses 4 to 20. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed um, Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you so downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, If you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. 
Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favour in your eyes. Then she went her way then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then they went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. Fantastic. Thank you. Okay. So we've got somebody, Hannah, we've got this, this woman from the Old Testament. It's interesting, you know, that when we remember some of the heroes of the uh, Bible and we think of the blokes involved in the Bible, then they're very, often, they, they're very often quite powerful people, quite big names. We think about David, Moses, Joseph, Joshua, people like that. People who maybe had started maybe from lowly beginnings, but that um, we remember them often for their kind of power and their authority and their position. When we think about the women that God uses, he very often chooses women of very kind of lowly, relatively, if you like, insignificant position. Um, And they have this kind of small part in God's plan, but a very significant and important part. And Hannah is one, one such woman who God uses. And she is really, really miserable. We're not talking about she's having an off day. She's really, really down, downcast and downhearted. The words that are used, things like bitterness of soul. What the Bible's describing here is, is an interior kind of pain, a pain that's right in her heart. It talks about that she wept much, and the actual word that's used there refers to wailing or crying out. This, this is a woman who is crying out in this emotional pain. Um, she lives in one of those slightly bonkers Old Testament families where there are two wives. My husband would say one is quite enough. Um, And uh, she's provoked by the other wife. And uh, basically, the word that's used there, it says she's provoked and irritated. And the actual word means that she roared. When it's irritated, the English language doesn't really do it justice. It means that she roared with anger and grief. And why is she in this pain? She's in this pain because she can't have a child. She's childless. Now, I would reckon that for any woman, in any culture, in any time in history, in any context, if you want a baby and you can't have one, that is incredibly painful on a personal, emotional level. I'm sure that many other women here would agree that something quite odd happens at some point in your life, some little switch flicks where you go from slight indifference to having children to, I want one now, and I'm not going to settle for anything else. And I I think for any woman who can't have a child, it's extremely painful and very sad. 
I think for Hannah in her situation in this kind of ancient society, there was some other stuff going on too. So culturally for her, there were some reasons why this was an even more difficult and challenging situation for her. For example, in ancient society, the economic status of a family directly related to how many children you had. So although feeding children is an expensive thing, you also need them to work on the farm. These would have been farming communities. You need these kind of these bodies, really, to run the farm, do the work, and to make sure that you've got a family workforce. Um, if there was a conflict, if there was a conflict with another tribe, then you need um, young men and young women to contribute to that conflict and to be fighting on your side. So from the point of view of the tribe, of the culture, if you were a woman that produced lots of kids, then you were a bit of a hero. You were, you were kind of doing your bit for your culture. And in terms of the kind of future security for, for them as a family, there weren't going to be any pensions, there wasn't going to be any um, kind of social security benefits or anything like that. You needed your children to make sure that you had some kind of financial security. So there was this enormous cultural pressure for Hannah and the emotional pressure. And there was a sense in which, both from a cultural and a personal point of view, without a child, Hannah would have felt a sense of worthlessness, that because she couldn't do this one thing, and that would have been the perception that it was in some way her responsibility. I think that for Hannah, there was a sense in which her kind of personal, cultural, financial, if you like, salvation depended on this having a child. Tim Keller, who's a Christian preacher and writer, says this, Every culture puts things in front of people and says, if you don't have them, you are worth nothing. So our culture might be different. We might be living in a long way away from the culture that Hannah was living in. But every culture puts things in front of us and says, if you don't have those things, you're not worth very much. But maybe that would be around material things. Maybe it's to do with um, achievements in our job. Maybe it's to do with success in our relationships. Maybe it's to do with how we, how we do or don't look. Every culture has pressures. And within all of us, part of what drives us to be who we are will be a desire to succeed in certain areas. And we're sometimes not even aware of what those kind of blind spots might be. Discontentment with Hannah's life was coming from this desire to meet this personal and cultural ambition. I wonder how many people in our culture, how many people in this room suffer from a sense of discontentment and whether or not that actually is a very unsettling thing, not something that motivates us in a positive way to do something good, but that actually leaves us with a sense of always wanting to, to try something else new, always wanting not to stick with what we're doing. Maybe in relationships, we get to a point where we feel discontent. And maybe that causes us sometimes to look outside of relationships that we're in, in an unhealthy way. Where do we, where do you get your sense of self-worth from? 
There's nothing wrong with a woman wanting to have a baby. But if your entire core sense of self-worth and identity comes from, and your sense of well-being right inside you comes from something like that, that you have no control over sometimes, then it can be very destructive. What do we put our security in? What does our culture tell us that we need? Of course, it's important that we do invest in the things around us. We do invest in our work. We do invest in our family. We do invest in the relationships that we have. Of course, our children, um, those of us that are lucky enough to have them, need to be uh, you know, very much something that we do invest in and that we do want to see. We want our children to be good at what they do. We want them to do well. We want them to be happy. But they can't be, our core sense of well-being and and self-worth can't be invested in them. Um, Over Christmas, we had this really annoying piece of homework we had to do with our children. Lily and Ethan came home. And why they did this over Christmas is beyond me. But we had to sit down as a family and talk about how we resolve conflict and um, which you can imagine at Christmas is a really happy thing to do. And, you know, if, if there's nothing like your kids to make you feel like um, you've got things a bit wrong, actually, and your parent probably knows that they're quite good at that. So we all sat down in the room. I said, right, we've got to do this. So everybody sit down. So we all sat down. And um, I said, right, we've got to talk about how we resolve conflict. So there was this kind of stony silence. And then Ethan, our oldest, kind of said... Well, normally you shout <laughs> to me. And I said, well, you know, shout's a strong word. Shout's a strong word. Well, you do. Well, what about if we need to decide who's going to watch what on the telly? Well, normally you shout. And then <laughs> as this went on, in the end, I kind of put the paper on the table and said, oh, we're not doing this now. And off I went. <laughs> you know, nothing like your children to point out to you that you sometimes get stuff wrong. Obviously, I don't shout, you misunderstood. But the point is this. If my self-worth as a person, or even as a parent, is entirely wrapped up in my children, then I think I could be heading for a bit of a fall. Because I'm not a perfect parent, and I will get stuff wrong. We have to have a stronger core than that. These things will let us down. These things that we put our faith in, won't necessarily be everything we wanted them to be. Our spouse might not be everything that we wanted them to be. God says this, I love you with an everlasting love. And I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's where we get our security from. Genuine peace comes from holding I believe, lightly onto the things around us and tightly onto God. And that's not about not caring about our kids or our families or our jobs or our friends, but it's about understanding that the person we need to cling to is the rock who is our God and that we need to be able to sometimes hold the other things in our life with an open palm. Real security, I think, is about the things that not is not about the things that we build up around us, but the things that we're able to let go of. Then they don't hold a kind of power over us, which is negative and destructive. Okay, 
That was our first point, look. We're getting through it. Second point, Hannah responds to her suffering. What does Hannah do? Does she kind of stay in this state of misery forever? Or does she respond and do something about it? Verse 9 says this. Hannah stood up. And apparently, so I'm told, I just want to point out, I don't read Hebrew or or Greek. I read what other people... I can't see the point in learning it because other people have done that and written commentaries for you. (laughs) I did point this out at college once in a lecture. I wasn't very impressed. Um, So basically, what it says is Hannah stood up. And apparently what that means is Hannah rose to act. So she didn't just stand up. She rose to take action. It wasn't, she wasn't going to be passive about this misery that she was in. She was going to be proactive. Verse 15 and 16 talks about her praying. She talks about pouring out her soul to the Lord. She says, I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Poor old Hannah. The priest thinks that she's drunk. And uh, because she's muttering and she's not, the words aren't coming out, but she obviously looks so distressed. Um, But she says, you know, I'm, I'm not drunk. I've not been drinking. I'm praying out of my anguish and my grief. And I think there are three things that she does in her prayer. Firstly, she affirms who God is. She describes him as God Almighty. She, she affirms who he is. She affirms his control. She assumes God's compassion. She goes straight in there and presumes upon that. And she remembers, and this is really important, she remembers that she matters to God. She matters to God. The Bible is very clear that we matter to God, that he knows everything about us, that he knows how many hairs we have on our head. He is interested in your pain. He is interested in the things that bother you. He's interested in how you feel about your work. He's interested in the fact that you're not happy in the job you're in. He's interested in the relationships we're in when they're not going right, when they are going right. He's interested in the things that bother us. There is nothing too small that we can bring or too large that we can bring bring to God. I wonder whether anyone here has forgotten that we matter to God. How do we pray? Do we pour out our souls to God? When I was growing up, um, I was a teenager in the 80s. I know you'd think I don't look that old. Um, And my mum was massively into Christian posters. It was quite the sort of fashionable thing to have Christian posters with Bible verses. I was always quite embarrassed about them, actually. But I do remember one with this little puppy swimming really hard across a lake. And the, the uh, the words across it said... When it's hardest to pray is when you should pray hardest, which is kind of trite, but it's true. When it's hardest to pray, that's when we should pray hardest. Sometimes when we're stuck in the depths of something that's really unraveling us emotionally, it's really hard to remember to pray. And that's when we should get down on on our knees and pray hardest and pour out our souls to God. What do you think our culture says about strong emotions and distress. I think our culture is quite embarrassed about strong emotions and distress. In other cultures, I think they're better at it than we are. But it's just not the done thing, is it, here? You just don't want to see people wailing and crying and being embarrassing like that. 
Do you know, I think that's really unbiblical. I think the Bible is clear. You pour out your soul. You don't have to do it in public. You can do it in private. But God wants to know what's on your heart. And Hannah asks God to remember her. And again, the word means to take action on her behalf. It's not just about remember me, think of me, don't forget me. It's about taking action on my behalf. What are the things going on in your life right now that you want God to take action on your behalf? What are the things that our culture might say, bury those things, don't talk about those things, don't express how you feel about those things. And God's saying, I'm here, I'm your heavenly father, I'm never going to love you any less for anything you tell me. Nothing you can tell me will make me love you less. And um, I want to hear about the things that are going on in your life. And there's a key point in verse 18. After praying, it says that Hannah went on her way, ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. What I think is lovely about this story is that Hannah seems to find a sense of peace before the problem is resolved. So it doesn't say, and later on we do find out that she does have a son, a very special son. But before that point, she gets a sense of peace. That is the real miracle of our relationship with God. Now I do understand that sometimes people are in real deep turmoil in their life. And it might be about stuff that's gone on in the past. It might be about stuff that's going on now. And I don't in any way want to minimise that. But I do believe that there is a genuine peace from God, even when we are are in the middle of difficulties that he can give us when we come to him. And lastly, just on the perspective of Hannah's story, chapter 2 that we haven't read, it would be really good if later on, if you get a chance, you go and have a look at chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. Hannah sings a song of praise because she is given a son. And, um, And it's incredible what happens Um, the the action that she takes and what then happens with Samuel, her son. Um, Hannah sings a song of praise and there are two kind of things I just want to highlight about that song. One of the the themes is that um, it's a kind of personal theme really and it's about um, that God has delivered Hannah from what she describes as a position of disgrace to one of honour and strength. And this is this thing about these cultural expectations that God has delivered Hannah. She sings this song of praise to him about that. But the other theme that she uses in the song is she uses lots of imagery about the fact that God is a God who turns things upside down. And the imagery she uses is about how he brings those who are high low and he brings those who are low high. She kind of uses this imagery. We worship a God who surprises us by his actions. And the biggest surprise of all is Jesus Christ. God who stepped into earth as a man in the person of Jesus, who was disgraced on a cross, who suffered and died the most humiliating and disgraceful death so that we could be honoured as God's children. 
That is the God that we worship who turns things upside down. That was God's salvation plan for history. And Hannah takes a part in that. Hannah takes a part in that salvation plan. How does she do that? She says this, If you give me a son, I will give him to you. I will give him back to you. All the business about not cutting his hair and um, dedicating him to the temple, it's about setting him apart and about him being God's servant. And um, basically in that role, by doing that, by, by setting him apart like that, interestingly, Samuel, her son, can't fulfill for her some of those things that would be natural in a normal mum-son relationship. So by giving him to the temple, she actually gives up that personal... She doesn't care for Samuel from being a baby. He goes and lives in the temple, and the priests care for him. And so she gives up that role, which is incredible when you think of how desperately this woman wanted a son. She gives him over to God. And the other thing that he can't provide for her is the financial security that he would have provided that we talked about at the start because he's going into the priesthood and he won't be making money for her in her family. So she prays this prayer. God answers her prayer and she gives him back to God. It's an incredible story. Hannah holds on to this most precious thing, the thing she's always wanted, the thing that caused her to wail and to cry and to weep. She holds on to it so lightly and she offers it back to God. She says to God effectively, all my life I have wanted a son for me, but now I want a son for you. Rather than keeping the son, to be the means of her own salvation, Hannah releases him and dedicates him to be part of the greatest salvation plan in history, which is Jesus Christ. Samuel, her son, is the priest who anoints David, King David, who then um, Jesus is descended from. So this lowly woman, in pain, her prayer is answered. She's given a son and she gives him back to God. And he plays an instrumental part in the salvation plan for the entire world. Isn't that incredible? I think it's an absolutely fantastic story. Our lives are not accidents. Our lives are not accidents. God has a plan. God is involved in our lives. God wants desperately for us to share with him the deepest things that are going on in our hearts. And he very much wants us to feel able to bring everything to him. There is nothing that can separate us from his love and nothing that can diminish his love for us. What I would like us to do is we're going to listen to a song. And just while I'm explaining this, I'm going to get Jess and Graham to hand out some little bits of paper. We're going to listen to um, the words of a song, and it's called Let the Peace of God Reign. And it's a really lovely song. The words are, are, really, are really great. And with this little bit of paper, I'd just like you to think now about... What, while I was preparing this, I really, really felt that God was saying that there are people here this evening who have got really heavy hearts, 
that have got things on their hearts that are weighing you down and weighing, weighing us down. And that God really wants to take this, you to take this opportunity for you to share that with him. And one of the ways we can start doing that is just in our own minds and our own hearts to just start thinking about those things. So um, if you've got a piece of paper and, and there's some, hopefully some pens and stuff that might be coming around as well, um, while we listen to the words of this song, I'd like you to just think about it. You don't have to write anything down if you don't want to. Nobody else is going to look at this um, and you're not going to share it with anybody. <coughs> Um, just to write down some of those things that are on your mind, however small or, or however large a thing that is. And then when we've um, finished listening to the song, um, I'm going to say a prayer. And then I'm going to invite Dave and the band to come back up and lead us in some more worship.